Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is probably one of the most famous and successful uh, what you might call self-help books or non-fiction business books that's ever been written. Uh, the version I have, which is probably 10 or 15 years old, it says 15 million copies sold. And when I read that book many, many years ago, that's when the, the idea or the the kernel, if you like, for Use Because actually began. I think, anyway, if, from what I remember, I think I'm, I'm right. Because I remember thinking 15 million people have well at least bought this book maybe let we can assume that the vast majority of them read it but my question then was i wonder how many of those 15 million people could actually list out the seven habits of highly effective people and i would imagine that would be a, a much smaller number than the people who bought it and the people who read it and then i asked myself i wonder how many of those people who can name the seven habits have ever actually put it into practice because if you've ever read that book and it's the book we're going to talk about in this episode if you've ever read that book, it's incredible. It's, it's a great book. And I always say that all the time, but all the, the books that we do here, but I wouldn't I wouldn't talk about a book unless I thought it was really, really good. But that book in particular is, um, it kind of just helps you focus lots of different ideas that are kind of, you know, in other books. It's something about the way he puts the, the stories together and the, the instructional um, parts of the book. He kind of, he, he ties it all together very well. Um, but the seven habits of highly effective people is essentially broken up into three separate sections if you like the first one he talks about is independence and in independence there's essentially the first four habits the next two habits then are interdependence and the last one then the last habit then he, he considers to be continual improvement so when it comes to essentially this book is really about making sure that you're in control of your life and making sure both professional and personally i suppose but making sure that you're you're taking lessons from other people and uh taking responsibility for your own output into the world and one of the things he says near the beginning of the book i suppose in the kind of the introduction part is he talks about how to improve your life so if there's something in particular that you want to improve in your life um you know personally professionally financially spiritually um relationship wise yeah just a general sense of happiness or contentment he puts forward two things that you need to think about the first thing is to improve your skills so it could be like technical skills it could be soft skills but just improving your abilities in whatever areas are deficient and the second again is to work on your character so the two things to improve your life improve your skills and work on your character and I think that's a, a, a very interesting way to look at things is that your character is essentially about how uh, it's kind of almost like the, you know, that idea of, of doing the right thing when, when nobody is watching and no one's ever going to find out, will you still do the right thing? Whether it's picking rubbish up off the floor or, or handing in a wallet that you found or that kind of thing, right? So do you, do you have a strong moral compass? And um, are you led by your values? There's a great thing about I read about before about values, especially in a, in a company or an organisation, is that they should cause pain. If your values are just something that's plastered on the wall, then and nobody ever actually does anything about them, then they're not really values. The va- the real values of a company they should cause pain. They should it should be like the 
you know, you, you turn down a deal because, uh, or sale, whatever, because it's not right for the customer or it's not it's not really who you want to be focusing on or, you know, there's uh, too much hassle with the customer or whatever it is. It can't just be about getting the money all the time. It's about sometimes um, living by those values and kind of, you know, allowing them to cause pain um, when necessary, I suppose. But uh, so, so I think that's like that's kind of what he's talking about there in that first part of the book is to improve your life, improve your skills and work on your character. And uh, he says one without two will not lead to permanent growth or improvement. So um, you can have all the skills in the world, but if you don't actually work on your character, who you are as a person, uh, you know, the first one will kind of you'll get found out probably, I suppose. Anyway, the seven rules, seven rules, the seven habits, I should say, they're not rules at all, they're just ideas, things for you to think about. The seven rules of, of highly effective people are as follows. The first one is to be proactive. Uh, so well, I'll, I'll list them out and, and, and then we can we can talk about each one then. First one is to be proactive. Um, and really that means to, as opposed to being reactive. Um, we'll talk a bit about that. Uh, begin with the end in mind. That is basically have a plan. Uh, the third thing then is to put the first things first, and this is really about ruthlessly prioritizing. And the fourth one then is uh, think win-win. So don't always go into a negotiation or into a conversation with a colleague or a loved one or whoever it is, thinking that it's a zero-sum game, that if I win, you have to lose, or vice versa. You have to think win-win, which, which is almost like a cliche in business these days, that you know it's a win-win for everybody. But if you really, truly think about what he's talking about in this book when it, when he talks about win-win um it, it it leads to more creativity and problem solving it leads to more um more opportunity more kind of i suppose unseen opportunities or, or unexpected opportunities if you're if you're all the time looking out for for other people fifth habit then is to seek first to understand and then to be understood which is hugely important um bill cullen the guy used to be on The Apprentice in Ireland. He used the the um, the Alan Sugar, the Don, Don, Donald Trump of uh, of the the Irish version. But he used to have this saying. I think it was in one of his books. He had a book called um, "The Long Way from Penny Apples" or something like that. Great story about he how he how he made his money. But he had a a great quote to uh, to say nothing till you hear more, and that's I think that's basically what that's saying there in the. Uh, the fifth habit is to seek first, to understand, then to, un- then to be understood. A lot of people, when it comes to, to listening, you know, you, you notice yourself, you meet people who are just waiting for you to stop talking so they can start talking. But if you're, if you're, if you're listening just so you can respond, um, it's not as powerful or it's not as useful as if you were to listen with a view to understanding. Uh, what the other person is saying and, and they'll kind of lead your and, and in, especially in sales that's a huge thing and um, really try and understand what the customers or potential customers problem is and uh, before you start kind of trying to shove your solution down their throat sixth habit then of highly effective people is to synergize and that's really about teamwork it's really about um looking for creative ways to um bring different people or different ideas together um and the seventh one then is to sharpen the saw that and that's really about that's continual improvement that's like the, the third section if you like continual continual improvement or continuous improvement is um making sure that you're fit enough to play the game for the other six habits really so we'll 
rewind all the way back to the first one there to be proactive being proactive is i think a lot of it starts with uh with the language that you use in your own head the things that you say to yourself if something goes sideways and work and uh you know you're leading a project or whatever it is a reactive person might say something like well it wasn't my fault you know it was out of my hands i was on a day off that day i didn't even know that's all it could all very well be true those things might be factually accurate but it's not proactive it's you're not really showing leadership by you're reacting going, well you know you feel attacked or something or you feel like that somebody is um trying to pin it on you maybe you should let them pin it on you maybe you should take responsibility there's 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 something to be said in in sales say for example that every time you hear no you can kind of get defensive or you can get um uh, upset and you can let your confidence be rocked or you can take responsibility for it and say right well at some point if it was a game of chess almost i i i made the wrong move or i pushed too soon or um, there's something I didn't I didn't double check something or didn't temperature test as they say or you know whatever the thing is I didn't there was some something that I missed and whether that's true or not uh, it's a it's a frame of mind to keep because it's going to allow you to come up with your own solutions it's going to come up it's going to allow you to come up with a way to actually uh, figure out a way through whatever the thing is I'll give you a random example Many, many years ago, I had a, a small little startup and we sold uh, chutney, and um, which is like relish and um, pasta sauces and different kind of stuff. And in Ireland, there is a store, um, a chain of stores called Super Value, hundreds of them around the, around the country. And the way Super Values worked at the time, I'm not sure if it worked exactly like this anymore, but the way they worked at the time is that they had to buy 95% of their stock from central listing. So if you weren't centrally listed, it was a lot harder to get into these shops or right, into these stores. And cent- central listing basically means from their main warehouse, you know, like the, you know, the people who are on their system basically have to buy 95% of their stock from there. But the only way you can get centrally listed is by being in that other 5% in enough of the other, in, in enough of the shops. So if you go into a super value, 95% of the stuff in that shop comes from uh, their central uh, listing. But the other five percent then is chancers like me rocking up and uh, asking to speak to the manager and saying, "Is there any chance you throw this onto the onto a shelf for a few weeks and see how it goes?" I took this this approach of being proactive back in those days when I was I learned all about sales really by doing this because I got to a point where um, I had it down to like a forty five second pitch when it came to meeting a a manager. Now you you imagine going into this is true of of any store any shop anywhere in the world right any supermarket you go in and try and speak to the manager right now if the manager thinks that you're a a customer he's all smiles and he's yes sir no sir how can i help you um let me find that if you're right now they, they kind of put on that performance but as soon as they realize that you're you're the other side like of that you're you're not a customer you're a guy trying to sell him something it's not that they turn into mean people but their demeanor changes and it's almost like the shutters come down and they're they're a bit defensive because there's people kind of uh, at them all the time trying to sell them something or there's always somebody in every day who's trying to like offload something or has the the new greatest thing and i remember approaching uh these managers in, in super values having 
pretty much no experience in sales. I had no idea, like, how do people get their products onto the shelves? I, I don't know how they do it. So I just went up and I'd, I'd ask a manager, going, how do I sell stuff in your shop? And that's, you know, one of the first managers I spoke to happened to be a nice guy and explained about the central listing and the 5% that they had the, uh, the, the, the wiggle room, if you like, to take in, you know, independent suppliers and that kind of stuff. And so that's what I did. I started approaching shops and started to, to learn as I went. But what I what I used to do, and um, nobody ever taught me this, or it, nobody ever said I should do this. It just seemed like the, the logical thing to do. What I used to do is I used to go and go and speak to a manager in a, in a shop and interact, you know, might leave him a few samples, ask him a few questions, how do I get into your shop, and so on and so forth. I'd always go back into my car then, I'd have a, a notepad and a pen, I'd write down, everything that happened the time of day it was did i approach um too fast was i smiling uh, was he in the middle of talking to somebody else was he really busy what time of day was it all these different things i would kind of think well what was like from the good interactions to the bad interactions what were the good things what were the bad things and this is nothing to do with um you know the chutney or anything it's really to do with the psychology of understanding other people and of being proactive which is the first habit of highly effective people is to take responsibility for that interaction right i used to think i'm going to speak to this manager and they're really busy they're always in the middle of something they're always there's always something that needs to be fixed right when you're the store manager especially like if you're on the floor you're actually uh, going from aisle to aisle and sorting out um yeah, people on the the cash registers and all that kind of stuff and you, you see them they're always at something and I come in then and um, I'm, you know, all apologies and I'm trying to, you know, any chance and blah, blah, blah. And I realized after a while that that was the wrong way to approach these people. And it was only because I was being proactive and, and, and taking responsibility for every failure that I had that I was able to learn. So what I used to do is I'd say, right, well, they're always busy. Uh, the, the shutters go up almost or come down, if you like, almost immediately. Like they, they become defensive and like oh, another guy trying to sell me something. So I knew I had to make it fast. I had to make it. Um, what I used to think in my own head is that you're not the prize. I'm the prize. You, it's you get to have my products in your shop. And it might sound really arrogant, but what that would do is it would kind of bring my own confidence levels up. So that I go, look, this is a really good product. We've got a really funky brand, and uh, you're going to really enjoy this because I've. And what I, I got to a point then where I had to, like I said, the pitch was about thirty seconds to forty-five seconds. And then I'd hand them this box. And this box had three different types of chutney in it, right? We had three different types and uh, three different flavors. And this box that we happened to find had um, an, enough space for these these three jars. But the, the, there was one of those um, corrugated cardboard kind of thing. And the little windows were kind of, you could kind of tuck them in behind so you could actually see the three jars. It's like the kind of thing you get at Christmas, you know, like when you buy like um, chutneys and that kind of stuff. But I didn't just put the jars in. I put in uh, a flyer, a business card, napkins, three spoons, and a little tiny packet of crackers. Some of those little tiny crackers you get. And I just hand that to him and I'd say, have a sample of those, see what you think. I'm gonna give you a call next week. If you like them, great, we can talk more. Um, if not, no problem. And it got to a point where I would just have this down really quick. And it actually meant I was able to get around to more super values as well and um, get into more of them. So um, that, that, by being proactive in that particular scenario, it allowed me to learn. 
And I think that's one of the things he's talking about in this book is that to be proactive means to decide what each interaction means. It's to not kind of try and assign blame. And a lot of the time, blame doesn't need to be assigned. That's another kind of side thing to keep in mind. If something goes wrong with a project, it might not necessarily be any one individual's fault. It might just be a failure to communicate somewhere along the line. And it doesn't necessarily fall on one individual. So keep that in mind. But when it comes to being proactive, what they're what he's really talking about in this book is to take responsibility for your own output into the world. If something goes sideways, even if it's not your fault, just put your toe in the water of taking responsibility, even in your own head. Don't say it out loud. Go, well, if I was to take responsibility for this, what would, what would I say or do now in this particular scenario? And you might say something like, well, look, things have gone sideways here. Let's try and find a solution. If you spend the whole time kind of looking backwards and you'll see it a lot when people are reactive, like something, let's just say, stick that example of some particular project, you know, misses the deadline or you have that project creep and then things don't work out. You'll see people who just spend the whole time looking back, back in time. They're looking backwards, trying to figure out what went wrong. There'll always be time for a postmortem. But how do we fix it? How do we fix it right now? That's what proactive people do. Yeah, of course, you know, we'd have to figure out how this happened so it doesn't happen again. But there's a time and a place for that. And this isn't it. We need to find a solution. So in order to find that solution, you need to think proactively. Let's let's uh, let's work together. Let, let's say all the positive things. I've decided this is what we're going to do. Also, this is something I'm not particularly good at, but it's something I try and practice. Drop, I think, from your vocabulary. If you're if you're genuinely not sure about something, you can say I think. But if you are sure, just say say it. Don't say I think. And it's almost like it's almost like a way of apologizing for having an opinion. So it's something like, like I said, I'm I'm not I probably say it a lot on this podcast, but try not to. Try not to say I think. I think this is maybe what we should do. This is what we should do, in my opinion. It's a lot more um, proactive, I think. Um, so, one of the other things he talks about when it comes to being proactive, um, and there is there is an expression, I can't remember the exact expression, give me the grace to control the things I can control and, you know, the confidence to, I don't know what it is, but something like that. But in, in the book, he talks about two circles. You've got your circle of concern and your circle of influence. And this is still under the this uh, first habit of being proactive. Your circle of concern are all the worries that you have about you know, nuclear war, pandemics, um, global warming, <laughs> global recession or depression that's very possibly on the way. They're all in your circle of concern, all the things that we're all worried about, trying to pay your bills. But your circle of influence is smaller and it's inside that. The circle of influence are the things that you can actually control. That's what you focus on. You focus on the things you can control and you have the grace or the confidence or whatever that quote is to let go of all the things, not to let go of them, but to to understand or to accept that you you don't have control over all of you. None of us as individuals have control over global warming or over the pandemic or anything. Focus on your circle of influence. Focus on what you can do. And that's that's where you can be proactive. Um, he talks about a, a, a book by a guy called Viktor Frankl, which is um, Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, so Viktor Frankl is, it's a, you know, my mother actually gave me the book uh, years ago. She was, she was really moved by it and she bought me a copy. Uh, so Viktor Frankl was a, 
a prisoner of war during World War Two in, in Auschwitz. And he, uh, I don't want to get this wrong, he's either a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I can't remember exactly. Let's say psychologist, I think. Because what he decided to do was to turn, in order for him to survive this, um, you know, brutality of, of being in a prisoner of war camp, um, he turned into almost like a social experiment for himself to understand or to kind of um, get get first-hand knowledge of, of what of how humans react under this kind of duress and one of the conclusions he came to was that if somebody doesn't have meaning in their life they they will die right that was that was why he called the book man search me now it's obviously a lot more nuanced than that but that's what he kind of discovered but another thing he talks about in the book is um is the is the space between stimulus and response and this is a great opportunity for you to be proactive and to decide how you're going to react to particular situations. This, what he's talking about there is that your freedom lies between stimulus and response. And what he used to say is that people, the, the, the guards in, in Auschwitz would, uh, you know, they might hit them in the face with the butt of the rifle just for, for, for nothing other than to um, just out of pure evil, right? That's a stimulus. And between that stimulus and Viktor Frankl's response, he would say there was a gap, even a split second of a gap. And in that gap lay his freedom, because his freedom was his ability to choose how he would react. So it's almost like hitting the pause button on the remote control and thinking, OK, what do I want to do here? And it's not that he could fight back, right? He couldn't get up and, and physically um, fight with the, with, the, uh, with the Nazi. But what he could do, was he could choose in his own mind, his own mind, not to be a victim, not to feel like a victim, and to immediately forgive the soldier. And by forgiving the soldier, he was able to. Um, he didn't carry it around with him then. He didn't carry that hatred around with him. And like I said, he kind of turned the whole thing into like a, a social experiment. But I mean, better man than me, I would I would say. But his whole point was that no matter what the issue is. It's your response that'll make the difference. So a project goes sideways in work, your boss is screaming at you, um, the people on your team just seem completely demotivated and um, just you know not at the races. Be proactive. Think about what you can put out into the world to make it a uh, to make it more of a success. So first habit is going to say rule it's not a rule it's a habit that you can decide or not decide to employ is to be proactive is to decide how you're going to put things out into the world and what kind of language you're going to use language is a huge thing actually for um for action because the language that you use will determine your actions which is a it's a whole other thing but it's interesting second one then is to begin with the end in mind he gives the example in the book of um building a house you wouldn't build a house without a plan right if that's why that's why architects exist right they draw up very fancy plans and uh you stick to the plan now, obviously as like you know the map is not the territory you've probably heard me say that before in podcasts that you might have a plan and it's all looks great on paper but then when you bring that plan up out into the real world into three dimensions or four dimensions if you include include time then uh you know the map is not the territory there's nothing on the map that'll tell you what the wind direction is going to be the day you're trying to climb the mountain that's what the map is not the territory means you don't build a house without a plan so 
what you really want to do is um on i suppose on different levels is to is to consider uh you know one level might be at my funeral what would i like people to say about me and then work backwards from there or you might think at the end of this project what will success look like and work backwards from there think about the action steps that will lead to that particular success it could be to do with physical fitness it could be to do with um happiness it could be to do with anything right begin with the end in mind what's the plan what's what does success look like at the end of this particular event this uh, this particular decade of my life the end of this pandemic right begin with the end in mind he talks about not having a goal and you see this all the time right in the in the professional world where people are working 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 and i suppose when i was younger i used to you'd fall into conversation with these people who seem to be like workaholics and you'd they're obviously very driven but a lot of the time they're they're they can't see the wood for the trees right because they're they have to do the next thing and they do the next thing and do the next thing but when you actually dig down into into how they ended up in this job they kind of fell into it you know whether it's um i don't know somebody i was good at maths in school so now i'm an accountant right well is that really what you want to do right i'm not saying you should kind of give up your career or anything and uh because it is podcast but you know is is your ladder against the right wall is 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 a way of thinking about it i suppose begin with the end in mind what does success look like to you i've said it before on podcasts this particular podcast i'll say it again here that uh my goal with use because is to be the best teacher in the world and not not for my ego but because i think i'm morally obliged to put this stuff out into the world because i can i i've i've visualized what the success looks like and that's what i'm working towards every time i do a podcast every time i update the website every time i do something i'm i have begun with the end in mind i know where i'm headed so and it comes from 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 deliberate practice of these habits and of all the other things that i talk about in the other podcasts is going out there and actually trying these things and go well what what would it mean to be proactive what would it mean to begin with the end in mind and that's how you that's how you structure your life that's how you actually build these things is uh have a plan work the steps and that's it begin with the end in mind that's the second habit the third habit then is to put the first things first this really like i said comes down to ruthless prioritization i am terrible at this i don't mind admitting um it's something i'm continuously working on is trying to prioritize what's the thing i should be doing um i personally what i found works is if i have a to-do list i find that if i write down everything just as i think of it um maybe the evening before or whatever write down everything i have to do and then just number them okay scan down through it okay i'm gonna put that as number one that's the second thing i have to do that's the third thing i have to do and then look at your list and go right is that really correct should i really do that thing first and that thing second and that thing third and so on and i can it's a it's like a living document if you like for the day the first thing i do is okay well that's definitely the first thing i have to do and usually the first thing you have to do or you should do is the one thing you don't want to do you want to send that awkward email or um you know do that boring bit of things you don't really want to do but it's the most important thing generally that's how it goes for me anyway um so put the first things first ruthlessly prioritize but what you have to do when you're ruthlessly prioritizing is to think of urgency 
versus importance. And in the book, he talks about the, the Eisenhower um, is it the Eisenhower method or the Eisenhower um, matrix, which is basically a two by two matrix, like four boxes, basically two on top of two. And he talks about quadrants, right? So I'll just I'll talk through the four quadrants in this um, in this matrix. Quadrant one are things that are important and urgent. It's crises, right? You kind of have to deal with those things. Um, like projects gone sideways, it's going to miss the deadline, and so on and so forth. Quadrant two is important but not urgent. So it could be things like building important relationships or doing what we said for for habit two, actually planning out your goals. Those things are important, but they can always wait. Quadrant three are things that are urgent but not important, and especially the world we're living in at the moment, where every little ding and ping on your on your laptop draws your attention away whether it's on slack or i am or just even an email quadrant three are things that are urgent but not important they're the things that distract you quadrant four then are things that are not port not important and not urgent so <laughs> twitter right it's just a waste of time um unless your business is solely based on twitter um of course twitter is a, is a great tool for for business and for you know understanding the world but we all spend far too much time on on our favorite uh, social media platforms but what he talks about in the book is that out of these four quadrants which one do you think you should spend the most time on so i'll just i'll recap them again so quadrant one important and urgent quadrant two important but not urgent quadrant three urgent but not important and quadrant four is a waste of time basically not not important and not urgent so it's definitely not quadrant four and it's definitely not quadrant three because quadrant three is urgent but not important like the phone ringing um, basically what you're doing there when the phone rings or an email pops up or you know, slack dings at you whatever it is all that is is somebody else di dictating how your day should go so it's definitely not quadrant three so you might think it's quadrant one because that's important and urgent but in fact and I, this this is a little bit counterintuitive i think it's actually quadrant two you should focus on and his point is in the book that if you focus on things that are important but not urgent like building important relationships and planning your goals you'll have less stuff to do in quadrant one so the more time you can put into quadrant two so those kind of important but not urgent things the less you'll have to do dealing with crises which is uh which is interesting, I think, because it's not it's not it's not um it's not intuitive to think that that's that's how it will go. So moving on then to um what are we on four, which is uh, what is it? Think win win. You look at Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump is all about win lose. Everything to him is a zero sum game. If if America wins, then China they lose right or if china wins then the america lo america loses and uh he's just he's just an idiot when it comes to that kind of stuff apologies for anyone who, who's a big trump supporter but he's so binary about those things he just you know it's it doesn't have to be that way like most most conversations between trade i imagine between countries is a uh, nuanced right it doesn't necessarily have to be a zero-sum game so most situations then don't have to be a competition either. So most situations in your own job, in your own in your own life, you can sometimes see it as as a competition. Like if um, 
you know, if there's a, as a promotion or something and you're going for it and maybe one of your friends is going for it as well, that can seem like a competition. But really, you know, it's not. One thing I always think is interesting when people say uh, good luck to somebody they're in competition with. I don't want you to have the luck. I want to have the luck. So I'm not going to say good luck to you. What I'd prefer to say is play well. Uh, let's say it's a game of tennis, right? You're really good. The other person's really good. And you're going to have a game of tennis. So rather than saying good luck to the other person, I'd prefer to say I hope we both have a great game. And we hope we both are happy with our competition. I hope we're both happy with, um, you know, we left it all out there kind of thing. And then it's, you know, up to the universe to decide who wins. It's the same thing if you and a friend is going for a promotion. Uh, don't, it sounds weird to say don't wish them luck, but I, if there is luck, I want it because, you know, I'm, I'm competitive. I want you to be happy with your interview and I want to be happy with my interview. And then neither of us have to really worry about it because we both did our best and somebody else has to decide who's the best person for the job. So maybe slightly off the point of, of thinking win-win, but that's sometimes how I think about um, uh, having those, uh, kind of approaching those kind of seemingly competitive situations sometimes. Um. He talks as well about an emotional bank account when it comes to think win-win. That um, if you're willing to if you're willing to think win-win, like let's say it's a negotiation with somebody you're trying to sell some, you're trying to sell your product to somebody. If you're just trying to get money out of them or to to squeeze a higher price out of them, uh, you might win in the short term, but in the long term you won't. Right? If you put yourself into their shoes and uh, it's almost like putting money into the emotional bank account which is um it's a really interesting concept in the book is the emotional bank account uh he talks a bit about it and i, I if you're if you're going to read the book that's the bit i would i would think about i think is the is the emotional bank account especially if you're a leader in the team think about how you're putting things into the emotional bank account for uh for your directs your direct reports Next one then is seek first to understand and then to be understood. One of the, ex the example he gives in the book for this is um, imagine you go to a doctor and you know, you've got a pain or a rash or whatever. And the doctor says, yeah, 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 it's fine. I don't even need to hear this. I know exactly what's wrong. Here's the tablets you're going to take. Or you go to an optician and they don't give you an eye test. They just decide these are the glasses for you. These are the lenses that you need. That would be ridiculous, right? Because they haven't listened to you. How can you provide a solution if they if you haven't listened to me, right? And he says that's what happens in business and in life a lot, is that people, uh, they try to jump in with what the solution is before they've actually listened to what the problem is. So you should seek first to understand and then to be understood. Think about it from the point of view of your direct reports, the people who are reporting to you if you are a team leader. Oh, this guy again, right? I know exactly what his problem is going to be. Like that's, you're, you need to listen to understand. Don't listen to respond. Don't listen just so you can, they'll stop talking and you can start talking. Ask empathetic uh, questions. Ask, use empathetic listening, right? Where you're, and that really what all that means is empathetic listening is to put yourself into their situation. Put yourself into their scenario and try and see whatever the thing is from their point of view 
one of the things you can do and, and actually one of our recent podcasts was on um the truth about lying it's the name of the book by uh, stanley stanley walter stan b walters i think is the author's name that book the truth about lying was all about uh body language and how to read body language there's basically seven keys seven things to keep in mind when it comes to reading body language but tying that into this particular the fifth um uh, habit here seek first to understand and then to be understood one of the things you can do when you're trying to understand somebody as well as empathetic listening is to read their body language and a great thing i used to do back when we were allowed into pubs and restaurants is if my wife went to the bar or went to the toilet or you know i was at the table by myself i'd always try not to take out my phone right you know a phone is a real crutch when you're when you're left by yourself for 10 seconds and um I feel pathetic when I do it and I take my phone out when I'm sitting by myself. So what I used to do, and there's something I really enjoyed doing, was to, if you're if you're left, even if it's been in a coffee shop by yourself, look around at the people who you cannot hear but you can see. So whether it's um, a couple sitting at a table or um, a group of friends sitting together, and try and read their body language. Try and decide how well do they know each other. Are they colleagues? Are they on a first date? Are they siblings? Are they work colleagues that are not that familiar with each other? Are they best friends? What's the relationship between them based purely on their body language? And you'll be able to see things like, um, you know, rapport where they're, they're, uh, the way they sit matches or they take a sip of their coffee or their drink at the same time. Or if you can hear their conversation, that you'll find that they're talking at the same cadence, the same volume, the same pitch, all those things people fall into this natural kind of rhythm with each other um but to me that's a great way to kind of think about how you can understand people is uh empathetic listening so try and put yourself into their situation but just almost as a way to kind of um almost like a treadmill for you know a quick workout for for reading people or for understanding people is to um just try and read people when you're out and about and you'll never really know if you're right or not but you'll start to spot things like, well, I think they might be a couple because, you know, the wear of the face off each other are, you know, okay, that's obviously a stupid example, but they could be a couple because they they seem to, a lot of uh, engaging eye contact or they're, or if they are a couple, how long have they been a couple? Are they one of those couples that are out for dinner, but they just, they're doing it because they think they should? <laughs> We've all seen those couples. Um, or did they actually engage with it? They actually like each other. So there's there's a lot you can do when you're when you're looking at, at groups of people, and you can kind of prove it yourself. Then that I reckon that's what that's happening there. And then I often say to my wife, well, those people over there, what do you reckon? First date, colleagues, siblings, what are they? And uh, you get a good idea then um, about reading people, uh, and also listen to the truth about lying because there are seven key things you need to keep in mind when you're reading a person's body language. The sixth habit of highly effective people is that to synergize there was a guy this this is a synergize is really about kind of bringing people together on an emotional level rather than just um seeing people as pieces on a chessboard if you like to really think about people in three dimensions that they are you know full of complexities and contradictions he talks in the book about a guy called uh yeah, what's his name david uh Lillen, Lillenthal, i think his name was something like that and he was head of the Atomic Energy Commission after World War Two, And they had all these, you know, boffins that they brought together, all these um, super-duper brains. 
and he spent the first few weeks not talking about um, atomic anything. He spent the first few weeks making sure that all the people that were in this committee, in this group, making sure they were uh, bonded personally. Because he knew that as they were building up this commission, as they were talking about atomic energy and, and what the rules should be around this atomic energy, that tempers would get flared. And, um, you know, there was a lot of probably big egos in the room, a lot of very, very intelligent people. And he knew very intelligently that if they were not bonded, they would not be empathetic to each other. So he spent the first few weeks making sure that they actually bonded, right? Like all those those team building things that your, your bosses make you do, everyone rolls their eyes at them until you're doing them and they're great fun, right? It's And you do feel a bond with these people because you've you've connected with them on a human level. So that's a, a huge thing that he talks about in, in that uh in that book and actually I think as well jobs I've had before regardless of what the job is or what the actual task is I'm I'm, I'm open to to correction on this from anybody but I don't think there's anything better in the professional world than solving a problem with a team I think working on a good team where everybody pulls together and everybody is able to communicate well together and um, everyone works towards the same solution. I don't think there's any better feeling in the world than, like, of course, like you know, you're you're kind of doing your day to day tasks every day. But when something comes up like a particular project, there's actually nothing quite like, you know, everyone throwing their ideas down and feeling like they can throw their ideas down, and working towards a, a common goal. I think it's I think it's one of the best things about about the professional world I've discovered. It uh, is working in a good team. I think that's what anyone should should look for. The seventh and final habit then, and we'll finish on this one, is to sharpen the saw, is to actually prepare yourself to be able to do the other six things. So to be proactive, begin with the end in mind, put the first things first, think win-win, seek first, understand and then to be understood. Synergize. To be able to do those six things, you need to sharpen the saw. You need to make sure that you're prepared in, well, he says in four different ways. He says you need to have physical fitness, spiritual fitness, um, to be mentally fit and to be socially and emotionally um, put together basically so physical fitness fairly straightforward there's, there's three things basically you need to do for physical fitness food, sleep and exercise um, there's a book that I have not read but I listened to him on the Joe Rogan podcast um, a guy called Matthew Walker and the book is called Why We Sleep my brother-in-law read it and said it was brilliant um, and I, and I haven't listened to the guy on the on the, the podcast. Sleep is such a hugely... We spent a third of our lives asleep. It's obviously important. Food, um, you know, if a caveman can have it, you can have it. That's a good way of thinking about that. And exercise is, well, is exercise. Spiritual fitness doesn't necessarily mean you have to be into religion. To me, spiritual fitness is looking up at the stars and realising that your place among the stars is uh, infinitesimally small, if that's even a word, infinitesimally very very small um nothing matters apart from what you decide matters that's my approach to things uh, mentally healthy take a break meditate um spend time with, with your loved ones all that good stuff all of these things allow you they prepare you for um the other six habits and the the fourth section of the seventh law the seventh habit i should say it's not a law social and emotional um health 
build great relationships right have people you can vent with people in your team that you can just say inappropriate things to you can just vent with and uh you know what you know it won't go outside of um of that conversation um another key thing as well actually with, with that kind of uh, emotional health is please everybody will just leave 10 minutes between meetings give yourself a chance to breathe and to take notes on the meeting you've just come from it's amazing the amount of people who go from one meeting to the next to the next and you know when you're in a meeting with them that they're still thinking about the last meeting they haven't really given themselves a chance to uh, to come down from that one or to kind of formulate their thoughts on the previous meeting to formulate their thoughts for this meeting give it a give it five minutes if not more between meetings um, give yourself that chance of emotional health and uh, time to recharge and that's it it's a long podcast but this book is if you haven't read it I very much suggest you do The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People uh, by Stephen Covey and they uh, go out and deliberately practice these things then and uh, report back. Alright then, so until next time, thanks very much.